Open our lips, O God, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. Amen. Last week's gospel story was the parable of the ten bridesmaids, the ones who were wise and had prepared their oil ahead of time and those who had not. Millie suggested that maybe this parable was really about wedding etiquette. And if last week's was about wedding etiquette, we could perhaps say that this week's is about investment strategies. <laughs> neither are about neither, but anyway. You remember the old bumper sticker that was around in the 70s, Jesus saves, Moses invests? Yeah, bad. It was bad then too. But what we have here are two weeks back to back with some really harsh texts. Texts about who's in and who's not in. Texts about banquets. A wedding banquet last week. The joy of the master this week. And they're stark. And one of the things that Millie reminded us last week is that we are a few weeks from Advent, the start of the new liturgical year. A start and a season where we find ourselves being jarred because while the culture is showing all these pictures of cute infants and God knows what else to kind of mark the season, our first two weeks of Advent are John the Baptist shouting, repent from your sin, and are fed by the prophets talking about apocalypse and the world's melting and earthquakes coming, a really different message than what most of the culture is doing in December. And what the lectionary, these series of readings leading up to Advent do is they just don't end with a period and start with that. They're already beginning to prepare us for this jolt, for this shift of saying we are about to enter in something that is going to totally unsettle our world, that is totally going to shift how we see and understand ourselves, God, the world about us. Something is breaking into our world even now. And so these texts, these harsh texts that we might call them, are setting us up and preparing for what's coming. And this story today can sound kind of harsh. We have this master who just goes away for a time, doesn't say where they are going, doesn't say how long they're going to be gone, but entrusts one slave with five talents, one with two talents, and one with one talent. And I'm sure you're forgetting from when you went to Bible school that summer, they taught you what a talent was worth, but I'll just refresh you. A talent was the equivalent of 15 years' wages. That's not an insignificant amount of money. So let's take today's figures. Average American household, about $56,000. Let's go with the poverty level 25. Let's just say if you were making $25,000 a year, 15 years times five, even for this arts major, it's about $2 million the first one gets. That's huge. Here, just watch this while I'm gone. I'm not sure how long I'll be gone, but here is $2 million. Think you could live on that for a while? Maybe a month? Gives the second one about $800,000 and the fourth one about $400,000. And trust them. What kind of trust does that say? Now, the first two, we know what they do. They take the money and they use it and they double their money. And the last one is afraid and says, I'm afraid I'm going to lose this, so I'm going to bury it in the ground and make sure it's safe. And it would be very tempting to make this moralization that this is about fear and courage and using your gifts and your charisms and the thing God gives you, and it's not good to be in fear and see what fear does to us, and that would be too simplistic of a moralization of the story. 
Because even in Jesus' time, and I'm guessing in our time, if someone told you, I can double your money, that community too knew that to double one's money meant you took huge risks, huge risks, with no assurance that that money wouldn't be gone. And that community is going, wait a minute. So the people who risked all the money, that guy who risked $2 million, well, yeah, it might have turned out right, but what about the risk? That one who had the 800000 and risked it. The other person at least didn't risk it. It was going to be there one way or the other. And so the parable isn't just, do your best. The parable is take outrageous risks to be in the banquet in the life of God. Those who take the outrageous risks with who they are and what they are are the ones who find themselves in the banquet. And again, whenever we get to these stories about people being cast out, what the evangelists are really telling us is that we're the ones making the choice whether we're in heaven or hell. I mean, how many people choose hell regularly on a regular basis? I do. (laughs) If you're not sure what I mean, ask me later has something to do with not being integral in relationships, but that's just a quick synopsis. Not trusting relationships, not trusting myself or others, that's hell. And the banquet isn't about someone saying, you know, you just didn't quite measure up. I mean, how many people have had fear in their life? How many people, since you woke up this morning, found yourself afraid of something? It doesn't cast you out of the banquet. We simply make choices to pull ourselves out. And what the writer is really saying is by burying it in the ground, you didn't experience or participate in what that money, those talents, could have given you. You chose to pull yourself out of that. And the community itself didn't have the benefit of that which you could have shared with the community. That's hell. There's another part of the story. There's that phrase that says, after some time the master returned, which is a very pregnant word. Because at the time this gospel is coming together, all the gospels are coming together, we're about three generations after Jesus. And in Paul's letter, they're expecting Jesus tomorrow. Live like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Well, now three generations have passed, and they realize Jesus ain't coming tomorrow, probably not even in our lifetimes, because we've gone through at least three generations. The Romans are still here. How long would the Romans last? Another few centuries? And so what the writer's saying is, you know, we thought that Jesus was going to break back in any time and change and right and bring justice to this world, but it's not here yet, is it? And so how are we going to choose to live when we know that that breaking isn't coming right away? What does it mean to be faithful when you know things aren't going to change right away? I mean, you know, we kind of think that we have a two-year, three-year plan, and if things don't change in two or three years, well, then somebody screwed up And we'll figure out who did. We don't think generationally, regularly. It's hard for us to say, this might take 60 years, so what are we doing tomorrow about it? And that's what the evangelist is saying. After some time, we don't know how long. What does it mean to be faithful now with no assurance, no immediate payback? What does it mean to take crazy risks We have been in this process in this church at All Souls, for those of maybe visiting, um, 
that we've labeled koinonia during this fall and will stretch into the winter, where we're trying to listen in a new way to the community about us, the community in which we live, and trying to hear what is keeping the community from the banquet right now. And in that process, have invited a number of folks from the community to come in and talk about what they're doing and what they're engaging in and where they see life and where life is being challenged and held back. And we've been inviting folks to tell us some stuff that hasn't always been comfortable. Millie mentioned a couple of weeks ago when Jesse Pitt was here talking about the practice of redlining. And for those of you that may not have been here or not familiar, it was a government program in the 30s that was coming up with lending institutional help and went into 230-some cities in America and color-coded the neighborhoods in terms of what was a good investment, what was a risky investment, what was not an investment to be made so people would know, is this dangerous or not? Where is your money best spent? And green was really good, blue was pretty good, decent. Yellow was kind of shaky, and red was don't invest there. And to be yellow or red included language like the presence of Negroes and other people of color. Quote, unquote. And so what happened for generations was those green neighborhoods, you could get good loans. Well, if you were white, because we still had no laws about racial discrimination in housing. So you didn't have to sell houses to black. Well, in fact, you couldn't. It was in the contracts for many, many decades. So the green neighborhoods and the blue neighborhoods got all kinds of infusion of money that the black and red neighborhoods did not. That's not me making it up, that's just the history of what happened, because institutions knew, don't invest there, you're not going to get any money back. And those who lived in those red areas will tell you that if you could get money, it was at abusive rates and highly predatory. That's one thing that we've been listening to and encountering about what does that mean for generational economics. One of our speakers invited me to this workshop this past week where I learned a number of things, a couple of which I'll share. Many of you probably know this, some of you may not. Also, in the 30s, after the collapse in the 29, the government set up the Federal Housing Authority because until that time, to buy a house, you had to have 50% of it and you had to pay it off in three to five years. How many of you could do that today? <laughs> not the Donatelli household. And we've lived in our house 20 years. Anyway, what they did was say, we will come up with what we have now, the 10% to 20% down, you can pay it off over 30 years. And put in an investment of about $120 million over several years to get people into housing. That'd be about what? About $3 trillion today to encouraging housing ownership in that decade. 98% of that money went to white people. Talk about affirmative action. And then in the 40s, the GI Bill comes. I'm a child of the GI Bill. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but my dad came home from the war, got his education finished, got to buy their first house, the American Dream, suburb of Chicago. Man, we again put hundreds of millions of dollars into the infrastructure of America, into the families of America, to veterans who came back. Think of the generational impact of that money investment. Parents who could send their kids to school, all of that. And again, of all that GI Bill money, 
over 90% of it went to white people because there were many schools that wouldn't take in black people. Because again, remember those colored maps, black people couldn't buy into the green areas or the blue areas and had to stay in the red areas. And so there's this further economic depriving that's going on generationally. And again, it'll be 20 years from that time before we have the Fair Housing Act. And you think of all the ripples of where are the schools that over time perform better in what neighborhoods? In my hometown of Chicago, you've heard me say before, one of the leading gun violence towns in America, there's no gun violence in my hometown. There's no gun violence downtown. But if you take out the old Hulk maps, as they're called, and look for those red areas, that's where it all is. Because we're experiencing the generational fruit of banquet deprivation. Where we have intentionally had laws that helped some of us continue to grow our wealth and laws that pulled back others. And then we did things like urban renewal because those neighborhoods, gosh, they weren't improving. And urban renewal, which was its own Pandora's box of nightmares. Now, I'm not here just to make us feel uncomfortable. And anytime I like to go to guilt and shame, my good friends, meaning those who are honest enough to love me and tell me what I need to hear, say, you know, Todd, guilt and shame is really narcissistic because it's still making it about you. Guilt and shame doesn't do squat. Sorry, I hope that's not too crass. For those of you who guessed, we don't swear too much in the pulpit. Maybe every other week. But it's about what these texts are saying. It's about what Advent is bringing to us, shaking things, having us hearing things that make us realize, gosh, you know, this economic divide isn't just because we enslaved people you know, 150 years ago and it's still taking time to catch up. It's that for 150 years we have continued to create structural realities and systemic realities that have kept economics growing on one side of town and pulling the economics out of the other side. And as we as a community are practicing this time of koinonia, of listening, one thing we know is this is not going to get changed in two to five years, is it? So what does that mean for us to be faithful with this knowledge? And there's a whole lot more where that comes from. What does it mean to be faithful, to open ourselves to the understanding that the banquet is here for all of us? What does it mean to be choosing practices and behaviors that even if we don't see this change in our lifetime is us saying, we're going to work at that one? We are going to work at banquet living because we don't want to choose to be outside of it, even if we think we're already in it. That's what the gospel writer is offering us. You may not see certain things for generations, but what does it mean to be faithful? And what kind of life is generated by relational faithfulness? To our grant recipients this morning, you're the embodiment of this. You're the people who understand relationship is what we're about here. Programs are great. Checks are great. They facilitate a lot. But what it really is is about, as we've said, generating relationship dignity so that we stop being in communities where we say, you're in, you're out. You have access. You don't have access. And not just talking about it and praying about it, 
but saying, this is the piece that we can work on so that people understand, first of all, they're worthy of the banquet, and second of all, that it's not a banquet if they're not there. You're embodying that, and you are witnesses to us about what it means to build relationships of sacredness. And we thank you for that. So we're coming to the end of the calendar year. And get ready, because we're about to hear all kinds of texts about repent, about bringing the mountains down and filling in the valleys that are separating people. It's coming. And the lectionary cycle loves us enough to start warning us about it and saying, for what are you looking? For what are you preparing? There is a banquet out there. And the banquet is there for those who are engaging in communities and relationships and for those who are taking huge risks with themselves. 